Hey guys, it's Romina from It's the Brown Thing, and today we are going to explore the roots of yoga and cultural appropriation of the practice with Pragnia Brianna Vieira. And here we go. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Romina. I'm, I'm, uh, this is a topic that's really, really close to my heart, and I'm a really big fan of your mom. <laughs> Thank you. I think we all are. Um, I absolutely love my mom, and I am extremely, extremely thankful that she connected me with you and me that we too. have the opportunity to do this because it's honestly something that has been on my mind, and I know a lot of other people, part of the team, have been talking about yoga. Yeah. I know a couple of our um, ambassadors are also part of the yoga industry, and I'm sure we would they would love to hear about what you have to say about this. Awesome. Okay, so um, let's just get started with a little intro about yourself and how you started here, um, what your relation is to the yoga industry, just mm -hmm. a little. Sure, bit. yeah. So um, just first of all, because this is a podcast and people aren't seeing my face, I'm a white woman. <laughs> I'm, I'm not South Asian, um, but I was actually raised as a Hindu. Um, and that happened in part because I came from like a very open-minded and spiritual family. My grandparents were, you know, kind of into Zen Buddhism and metaphysics and different things like that. Um, but my dad went to India when I was a little girl without me. He kind of went on a spiritual pilgrimage and he was really profoundly moved by his experiences there. And uh, when he came back, we started attending like a local satsang. Mm -hmm. And so that was my first exposure to Hinduism actually was when my dad opened his suitcase <laughs> and I smelled all of the sandalwood <laughs> oh, yes. that he brought back. And, you know, this was the eighties when there was like real Mysore sandalwood. Mm -hmm. And I remember just inhaling that smell and thinking, if that's what India is, <laughs> I want to go. <laughs> I remember coming back from opening my suitcase. Always, India has such a distinct smell. Yes. I will hear, I will like smell it just a little bit sometimes. I'll be like, oh my God, I miss oh that. Oh my God. It's just so like spices and incense and yeah. And he also brought me a stack of Amar Chittakata, mm -hmm. like comic books. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was like my first introduction to really the stories behind the deities. And, um, and like the first time I heard bhajans mm -hmm. at our satsang, I was absolutely just totally captivated. So Hinduism like stole my heart from my very first exposure. And even long after my dad kind of... Um, went a more secular route in his in his own life path. Um, I've continued to practice and deepen my faith throughout my life. I started teaching yoga um, in two thousand and one, and and uh, I taught for twenty years. I retired just um, last mm -hmm. year, and I. Um, over the years as I was teaching yoga, I found a lot of things really frustrating about the, the environment of the yoga industry. I had, because I started so long ago, I had an opportunity to really see the industry develop into what it is today because mm -hmm. it was very different when I started teaching. Yeah. Um, and, um, 
But really, even from those first early days, the thing that bothered me the most about the yoga industry was how separate it was from the Hindu community. Mm-hmm. And I saw in the yoga studios a lot of the trappings of Hinduism. I saw the deities in the temple, you know, and uh, in the yoga studios, but I didn't see the puja. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw, and oftentimes I would see, you know, like imagery of deities, like placed or used in in a way that would not be considered appropriate by most Hindus, like mm-hmm. putting a, like a, a murti next to the shoes or, mm-hmm. you know, things or in a bathroom or just mm-hmm. stuff that like we wouldn't do because we've yeah. been taught differently. And so over the years, I think that really this disconnect between the yoga industry and the Hindu community mm-hmm. is kind of the root of, of, um, a lot of the dysfunction and exploitation in the yoga industry. So, um, I mean, I could say a lot about what I've learned about it and I know we'll get into some of the other stuff, but what ultimately led me to quit teaching yoga was the level of personal conflict that I feel with participating in an industry that is rooted in exploitation of an indigenous wisdom tradition Mm -hmm. that excludes the indigenous lineage keepers of that wisdom tradition and that uh, profits off of it. Mm So as a, even though I am a practicing Hindu, I identify as a Hindu and I, and I feel that my presentation of yoga has always been as authentic as possible. And I've put so much work into really, really trying to bring very high quality and authentic yoga teachings into the studio culture. Um, my own status as a white woman within that environment doesn't absolve me of the power imbalance. Mm -hmm. And so I, and it doesn't absolve me of the exploitation involved every time I bring a pay, a paycheck home. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was an ethical choice to step away from that industry entirely. And I'm not saying that I'll never teach yoga again, but I think that if I teach yoga again in the future, it will be more like out of my living room with like your mom and Kirti <laughs> and like, <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just people that I like friends that I yeah. think like we just want to be in the sadhana together mm-hmm. yeah. and just explore our spiritual practice together, right. you know? Right. That kind of thing. Less for corporate profit. Yeah, yeah. just not for profit at all. And that's yeah. not saying that we can't like exchange, you know, exchange our wealth and mm-hmm. generosity with each other. Yeah. We do in in lots of different ways. Mm-hmm. But I really want to work outside of the capitalist framework mm-hmm. if I were to teach yoga again. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you so much for that little intro. Yeah. Um, we're just going to quickly define what appropriation really is for our listeners. And so um, I think the main thing that makes yoga culturally appropriated, especially in the United States, is the fact that South Asian and Hindu people are just, and culture, is just barely ever given credit, mm-hmm. right? Like you mentioned, um, 
it's misused, it's mm-hmm. misrepresented. And I think when coming from a culture and a religion that already has so much misinformation information spread about it, mm-hmm. when people go ahead and exploit and discredit Hinduism and South Asian culture for all it's done for the industry, and it just, you know, that's what that's where the real appropriation comes from. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing is um, when people remove the true essence of yoga and what yoga really is and where it comes from, its lineage and its background and how it connects to people on a more spiritual and less of a commercial and social level Mm -hmm. is when yoga can become so harmful and hurtful to so many people who really take the effort to truly practice it in a a good and a honorable Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. Um, I think... The last main point is the fact that you... I I love that you said honorable way. That's so beautiful because I think, you know, um, there's kind of an intangible piece of this, which is that Hinduism and yoga are are about dharma. Right, yes. You know, and so there's there's something, um, there are many things, but like the industry, the way yoga is being taught and practiced in the West is adharmic. Yeah. yeah. It just is. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I love that choice of words from yeah. you. Yeah. I think what people don't really realize is that yoga in defined in the Vedas is one of the many ways that people achieve moksha Mm -hmm. or nirvana Mm -hmm. um, and something that is just so key to a Hindu's way of living. Not all of us take that path, but a lot of us do. I mean, it is a really important journey that people take and try to immerse themselves for such a long time and it really hurts to see other people take advantage of that and take credit for something that you know, really isn't theirs to take credit from. Yes. You know, it's like, it's when I see things like goat yoga or I see the Kardashians <laughs> promote, like, weird stuff, and I'm mm-hmm. like, where did you get that from? Mm-hmm. It's like, where is this stuff being spun from? Because I don't, don't really see it in, you know, the true cultural roots of where that comes from. And I think if you have already just a very like surface level relationship with the culture and tradition Mm -hmm. that yoga comes from. I think that like doing things like goat yoga or beer yoga or whatever, Mm -hmm. like I think this kind of feels like a natural extension because it, because it feels like you're, I think a lot of white people in particular experience yoga as a, as a means of Mm self-expression and creativity. And so for them, it becomes about their rejecting their Christian upbringing or, you know, it's a way for them to embody something that they weren't given in their own culture. Mm -hmm. But instead of actually going to the source and immersing themselves at the source of yoga, they, they have taken this, they've kind of skimmed the surface and taken um, the parts that feel useful to them in constructing their new identity. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, completely get that. That completely makes sense. And that is a perfect segue into kind of our introduction to yoga um, in the States and how it came up and became so popular. And like you mentioned, Yoga was first used as a rejection of the church and the government. I mean, it's a lot like the hippie movement. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really where it came from. It's a big counterculture um, 
movement and that it's it's really just about if you think about it in the 90s and the early 2000s it was like white girls who wanted to go against their upbringing mm-hmm. just like you said yep. and it was a way for them to express themselves and kind of hide behind the forefront of art mm-hmm. and exercise mm-hmm. when it, really that is a that is a part of it but that's not the entire picture at all and there's another kind of interesting layer to that like re- re- as far as like rejecting like in the act of rejecting our own white women's own mm-hmm. cultural fetters, mm-hmm. we have also like tried to impose that on the yoga tradition. Right, so yeah. the, the, there's almost this glorification of being um, uh, contrary yeah. to the tradition. Yeah. Like, I'm thinking of like the t-shirts that say like, namaste bitches, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) you know, or like namaste (laughs) or like, like, like some yoga teachers that play like, like music in their classes that has just absolutely nothing to do with a moksha sadhana Mm -hmm. that is just purely there to create a vibe, like teachers that try to make their classes feel like a like a party kind of and and it's you know I was at a Navratri Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, puja at the Fremont temple a couple weeks ago and um, you know we were all dancing Mm -hmm. and celebrating and I was thinking to myself like Hindus know how to party like (laughs) like so good (laughs) you know like they really there there is a way to party within mm-hmm. the tradition yeah. that is so beautiful and mm-hmm. so sweet and special and inclusive and mm-hmm. uplifting and wholesome. Mm-hmm. There's no need to try and make yoga like a nightclub experience. Right, right. It, it's already fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. I think it's really similar um, to the things that people would wear to church. You know, yeah. it's about respecting, Yeah, like, you know, I feel like that's the easiest way to understand this, but it like what you wear mm-hmm. every Sunday morning mm-hmm. is, that's a sign of how much respect and how much appreciation you have for, you know, what mm-hmm. you're doing in your religion. It's really, really similar um, to what appropriation is in yoga and in Hinduism. It's really about embracing another culture in a way that's respectful and not taking it over and making it your own. Yes. You know, because culture is shared all over the world. We would not be where we are if we had not shared our culture, shared our resources. But it's more about understanding that it's not yours to take and Mm -hmm. make different, but Mm -hmm. it's yours to understand Mm -hmm. and adapt in a respectful way. Yes. Yes. Right. Um, And so now talking about um, some of the like representation of yoga in the early 2000s and in the 90s, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, but there's whole industries now based on yoga, and yoga was marketed as a product mm-hmm. instead of a experience or, um, you know, it. this relates back to it's not giving its roots to Hinduism. Mm-hmm. It, you know, when it first came up, it was really not a Hindu movement or a South Asian culture. It was really just about... 
um, you know, oh, we want to do a different form of expression, a different form of art, a different form of exercise. Um, and we see people like Christy Turlington and J-Lo um, embracing these kind of things, not knowing what it is and mm -hmm. representing yoga as a product. And this kind of spiraled this whole industry that we mm -hmm. have today mm -hmm. where yoga is made for white man's profit, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. it's made for um, social and economic gain. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we see it in such small things like Lululemon. I mean, we have whole industries mm -hmm. based on yoga wear. And I mean, yoga wear that we have now is not even near to yoga where we started in Hindu tradition and South Asian culture. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not to say that any of that is wrong, but it's just how it came is yes. so ironic. You yes. know? I mean, yes. we really can't change 30, 40 years of history, but we can understand what may have gone wrong and try to, you know, adapt ourselves and fix some of our mistakes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think one thing I really, really love to talk about when talking about Lululemon is that the founder um, created the name because <laughs> oh he thought God. Japanese people couldn't <laughs> say it properly. So awful. Oh and my I God. think as much as we can joke about that, it's just such a amazing representation of it's the industry. Cruel. I mean, it is just, that is what the industry is now. Mm -hmm. It's profiting off of one Asian um, religion and one Asian culture while making fun of another one. Yep. I mean, how in <laughs> your right mind could that possibly seem ethical to someone? Yep. It's just, blows yeah. through my mind, but yeah. it's okay. Um, there's, it's just small things like that. And also, I think, you know, I mean, Lululemon is such an interesting case study because, of course, now what Lululemon has done ha has now been done by so many other right. brands. But, you know, they were certainly trailblazers. And a big, a really interesting part of what they did to me is the sexualization of female mm -hmm. yoga practitioners, yeah. making, you know, making female yoga practitioners... Um, like making yoga into a fashion thing, making, you know, making yoga clothes that are sexy and revealing mm -hmm. and, you know, form fitting. And like the reason that yoga, that uh, Lululemon even became such a well-known and beloved brand was because mm -hmm. their original groove pant that they came out with yeah. became famous in the fashion industry for making women's butts look good. Mm -hmm. So, and then, and it was because of that pant style that the term yoga butt was coined. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, um, this in a way connects to what you were talking about with like, uh, sorry, who's the model who... Christy Turlington. Christy Turlington, yeah. yeah. Like, same thing, like yeah. this kind of presentation of yoga as a beauty mm -hmm routine or yeah. like women okay there's a lot of workshops out there right now about like embodying the goddess right, yeah. and like you and i know because of our study of classical indian dance mm -hmm. that there is a way to embody these deities mm -hmm. physically yeah. but it's according to scripture mm -hmm. and there are there are very specific boundaries and guidelines for how we are to portray the deities yeah. in art and it's not the deities are not there for our personal empowerment mm -hmm. you know kali is not there 
you know, for us to express our rage against the patriarchy. Right. <laughs> That's, you know, she, she is the ultimate liberator. Yeah. And, you know, her, her, her sword is not there to, to, um, you know, to uphold our right to be, you know, righteous girl bosses. <laughs> her, <laughs> that's not what it's about. Her yeah. sword is um, cutting through illusion and liberating us from yeah. the fetters of our of our delusion. Mm -hmm. um, when you said that girl boss thing, I, I <laughs> so funny. Uh, it reminded me of. I feel like this would be a thing. I please do not take any. Um, ideas from this. Let's not make this a trend. <laughs> but I feel like hashtag Kali is a queen would be a thing. Yeah. Is that, yeah, is totally. That a, right. I feel like that is, please don't take any ideas. Yeah. We are not doing that. Um, but I feel like it's just small things like that. It's just so messed up and ironic. And yeah. I love that we can joke about it, but it really comes from it's actually really painful. Yeah, it it's like really super is. painful when you yeah. come across like memes that people have taken oh, yeah. deity forms yeah. and you know turn them into something political or yeah. cultural commentary or whatever. It's and that's you know it's it's really frustrating to see that stuff from the yoga within the yoga industry where they will use the sacred sacred iconography mm -hmm. of Hinduism to as as a means of personal social and creative commentary yeah. but at the same time their presentation of yoga is like devoid of any meaningful relationship with those deities yeah. Yeah. you know it's not just about oh i like the one with the elephant head mm -hmm. and you know uh, it, it's not just about liking mm -hmm. the aesthetics of the faith Right. But having a meaningful relationship with mm -hmm. the faith, having a meaningful yeah. relationship with those deities. Right. You know, that reminds me of I was shopping at Urban Outfitters and I saw um, a T-shirt with Ganesha on the back. Mm -hmm. and I was just like, I like, what can you do about it? It makes me feel a little uncomfortable that mm -hmm. that's represented in that way. But what hit me even more is. If I was to, let's say pray to Ganesha in front of white people probably making these same products, mm -hmm. what would they have to say about mm -hmm. it? But when they do it, it's perfectly fine. And I think that's one of the biggest problems with appropriation in any culture and in any sense. It's that when white people do it, it's okay. It's cultural capital. Right. And when the people of the actual culture and religion do it, that is when it's demonized. I mean, it comes to such little things as celebrities um, dressing up as, like, goddesses on mm -hmm. Halloween. Like, yep. Yep. You know? And you see it in things like astrology. I remember someone, I was having an argument with someone about how Western astrology has really been appropriate, or Eastern astrology has been appropriated and um, taken a turn on how people view the aesthetic and mm -hmm. life of Western astrology. And they were telling me that um, a lot of where Western astrology comes from is from like Greek, old Greek religions and Greek goddesses. I'm like, no, it hasn't. That's, that's the thing. <laughs> that's what people think. Yeah. But it really hasn't because that sort of culture died down a long, long time ago, and mm -hmm. that's not where people are rooting their ideas from right mm -hmm. now. They're kind of 
you know, stealing it from Vedic tradition and mm-hmm. things like Ayurveda, and again, no credit given, and mm-hmm. nobody even knows is kind Are of Are you familiar part. with the Theosophical Society? I am not, actually. Okay, so this is an interesting piece of this puzzle, mm-hmm. because the Theosophical Society was a group of European um, occultists, basically. Uh-huh. There was kind of, in the late 1800s into the early 1900s, there was this kind of resurgence of not resurgence but surge of interest in the occult and in metaphysics and i think this you know on a deep level i think that this came from europeans beginning to experience their own grief and loss of our own indigenous traditions being Mm -hmm. completely wiped out and looking for something to connect them to the mystical to you know to to the great unknown and looking to find meaning and purpose in life that's very understandable and a noble pursuit and a lot of those early theosophists they like madame blavatsky and alice bailey annie basant these people um looked to india they either traveled to india or they or like uh sir arthur avalon who was Mm -hmm. john woodruff who wrote um many famous books about Kundalini and Tantra and chakras and things like that. Um, they looked to India for to, to fill that gap in their yeah. own spiritual hunger. Mm-hmm. And that's very understandable. You know, right. that I think that's what drew a lot of hippies to mm-hmm. India and what drew a lot of Westerners here in America to yoga in the first place right. is that we, we, our ancestors experienced spiritual and cultural like epistemicide Mm -hmm. and and so there is a cult there is a void in us that that we want to fill and yoga seems to have like what we want but where we've really you know gone wrong where the early theosophists really went wrong is in they went to india and they skimmed off the surface they saw India and Hinduism through the lens of their own, you know, white Western mm-hmm. patriarchal lens. Yeah. Yeah. They projected a lot of assumptions onto the faith, the culture, and the tradition. Mm-hmm. And then they carried that back to the West mm-hmm. and kind of jumbled it all together in their own interpretations. And um, there's, you know, the like, chakras are a perfect example really Mm -hmm. because so much of what is taught about chakras in the western yoga world comes from the work of these early appropriators and it comes from um you know a lot of it is carl jung Mm -hmm. like uh this idea that the chakras relate to specific emotional issues mm-hmm. and all of these, these this is not in any of the traditional right. source texts yeah. you know so but but a lot of teachers yoga, white western yoga teachers when they when they talk about cultural appropriation they will insist that they know that yoga is spiritual and that they you know and they'll say oh i teach about chakras and mm-hmm. but they call it chakras <laughs> and Um, And again, so it's like, even when you are trying to make, you understand that yoga is a spiritual thing, and so you make your classes spiritual, 
but you've made it spiritual but not religious and you're not actually going to the source texts mm -hmm. and the source teachers and the source lineages and the source homeland yeah. to to receive that knowledge you're getting it from diluted sources already mm -hmm. a lot of western yoga practitioners and teachers do go to india um, it's a lot more affordable these days to travel yeah. internationally, even though it's still obviously way out of reach of many, many people. Mm -hmm. But yoga in the West tends to cater to a more, you know, middle and upper class definitely um, yeah. economic bracket uh, that do have the means to travel and go on retreats. But I, I have to tell you, over the years, I've seen so many white people go to India and miss India entirely. Mm -hmm. And they, they go there and they hang out in Goa or Rishikesh. They hang out in places where they know there's going to be a huge expat community yeah. and they're not going to have to interface mm -hmm. with the culture and the environment. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's kind of like... Um, eating the same food again and again like you're not if you don't step out and see what is mm -hmm. out there like you're not gonna get the real experience it's mm -hmm. like um, in very simple terms picking off the kids menu yes. you know? like, <laughs> yeah totally you I to, love that you need That's to so well grow said. up a little bit and move on from yeah. um, grilled cheese sandwiches and yeah. small kids fries yeah you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah I think the yoga industry is um, stuck in adolescence, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, um, I think this segues into our discussion about why it really is so hurtful for a lot of Hindus and South Asian people to see, um, to see yoga appropriated. And I think the big, big part of it is, I mean, India has been what you would call India right now, at least, mm -hmm. South Asia as a whole, has been colonized multiple, multiple times. Yep. And I think the biggest um, or the most recognized one, it's debatable, de debatable about mm -hmm. how important each one was, but I think the one that relates to yoga the most would be when the British colonized India and mm -hmm. kind of put a ban on yoga. Mm -hmm. And really a lot of Hindu practices, I mean, not to talk about the forced conversions and um, the dehumanizing, but in in very, very basic terms, yoga was not allowed to be practiced and yeah. it was seen as demonic. I yes. mean, all of Hinduism was demonic to white people. And, um, you know, when during colonial times, this has happened with so many, so many cultures with, you know, Native American people um, and it they have their own traditions that have been appropriated and ripped apart. Um, I remember seeing a video about um, a girl talking about hula dancing and how that had been so appropriated and how people do it just for fun and not understand where, you know, the lineage of the tradition and where it's come from and how hurtful it can be when people are misusing it or misinterpreting it. Um, and so segueing back to in India, it's when yoga wasn't allowed and when Hinduism was kind of stripped from families um, and you know, they were just forced to assimilate into British culture in their own mm -hmm. country, yep. which is so messed up, but that was the reality of the situation. And yoga only really popular popularized when um, British people started, or all of Europe started discovering anatomy. And I think that's such a weird <laughs> thing, because discovering um, implies that it had never really, you know, 
been thought of before, which is such a lie because the Vedas had talked about um, anatomy in such detail. I mean, Ayurveda is basically built off mm-hmm. of how you know your how we control our bodies and in what ways and what composition of our um, bodies is related to how we react and just so much to talk about there. Yeah. Um, but it kind of just shows you this idea of when white people do it, it's okay. And when South Asian people do it, that's when it's bad. Yes. And I think to see... And I think a lot of people don't realize that mm-hmm. India only gained its independence, oh, you yeah. know, 70-something years ago. Like, yeah. Yeah. really recently, right. India is a very young... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, young government at this uh-huh. point. Yeah. And, and so the wounds of that colonization are, are they're not only still fresh, but they're mm-hmm. ongoing. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and, um, you know, when we talk about decolonization, India is actually, you know, one of the most important case studies to look right. at for what decolonization looks like, mm-hmm. what it can look like, and the decolonization process is ongoing. It, it wasn't just about gaining independence. Yeah. And of course, we know that so much trauma and mm-hmm. suffering and death happened through that independence process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot, there's so much, okay, you know, there's, did you see Shashi Tharoor's uh, debate at Oxford? Have you seen that I, video? I know what you're talking It was like about, from yes. a few years ago. Yes. And he, he, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know, Shashi is a, is a South Indian politician. I, I'm not really a fan of most politicians. <laughs> <laughs> like nobody is left enough for me. <laughs> but... Um, but this particular speech that he gives is really brilliant. And there's a book that mm-hmm. came, that he wrote after that he was inspired to write after he gave that talk called Inglorious Empire, What yeah. the British Did to India. And it's, I think for anyone that wants to really understand, especially Westerners that haven't really studied that history mm-hmm. deeply, I think that's a kind of a, an important place to start. Mm-hmm. We really need to, you know, especially white people practicing yoga, really need to understand what the people who look like us did yeah. to India and to Indians and how deeply they damaged the yoga tradition intentionally. That, you know, yogis were forced to take their practices underground and to transmit their lineages in secret. Mm-hmm. And that that Indians had to come up with all kinds of creative ways to steward the traditions uh, away from the white gaze. You know, one example that really, really profoundly moved me was um, I was in India in, I think, 2018, and I was in Odisha Mm -hmm. with my dance teacher, and um, she took us to a Gotipua school. Do you you know about Gotipuas? If anyone is out there who doesn't know, in Odissi classical Indian dance, when during the the British rule, the the women who danced in the temples that was a, a female lineage based tradition. That um, that could be a whole other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the women were removed forcibly removed from the temples and not permitted to dance in the temples, mm-hmm. and the British government took over the administration of of those mm-hmm. temples. 
and in, but the deities were still required by scripture to be offered dance as part of their daily offerings. So it was actually young prepubescent boys that learned all of the traditional dances from the Maharis in, in the Odyssey tradition. They, they were called Maharis. And they carried on, they, they would dress the little boys in, you know, in the makeup and costumes of the female dancers, and they would perform the dances in the temples. Now, I knew about the Gotipuas, and I, you know, I had read some about them, but this was my first time seeing them in person, and we actually went to their school and spent the evening with them. They, you know, they danced for us, they performed, you know, a uh, like a full program for us mm -hmm. and um, and we got to speak with them and speak with the teachers there and everything. One of the things that they are that Gotipuas are really famous for is they incorporated uh, a lot of yoga asana, very advanced yoga asana into their dance presentations mm -hmm. and this is a very cool um, I mean kind of sad but also kind of amazing and cool. Yeah that that um you see these boys even today they're they are doing choreography that their their teacher who is in his 90s he mm -hmm. learned it when he was a young boy so mm -hmm. that was during the british rule yeah. when he was a gotipua in the temple they incorporated all of these very advanced yoga asanas into the dance all kinds of crazy arm balances and deep back bends and they incorporated into the choreography the women had not done those things mm -hmm. in the past but the boys didn't by by incorporating both the yoga asana and the dance you know it was young boys that preserved these traditions that had been outlawed by the british yeah yeah I think, you know, people really don't realize how recent India got independence. I think that's mm -hmm. such a perfect example of that. I think being a first generation, you know, it is, it's like my grandmother was born on Independence Day. Oh, wow. So it's, it is so, so recent. I mean, we can talk about how colonization is still really happening in India, but just to grow up here, um, assimilating into American culture, growing up in American culture, but still having those Indian and Hindu roots and seeing the way that it's represented and the misinformation that's out there and seeing how people are so disconnected from the reality of mm -hmm. how much pain that Hindus and people who practice yoga went through is really just sad and it, it's just so ironic because in this place where, you know, everybody's parents came to be part of this amazing melting pot of cultures. <laughs> and then you see this misrepresentation of the reality of the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think people joke about how Americans don't know about geography, but I mean, it's really, it's really true. <laughs> really, really don't know about yeah. how much goes on in the rest of the world. I remember... We don't know geography and we don't know history. Yeah. You know, I, I'm a history major right now and mm -hmm. I, I'm shocked all the time. It, yeah. it, every day I learn things that I was never taught growing yeah. up. You know, I, we are... I mean, American children have largely grown up with, you know, total blinders on regarding yeah. the global south. We just don't... We don't learn the histories of yeah. Asia and Africa and South mm -hmm. America and it's just... 
Yeah. It's like a total blank spot in our consciousness. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in American education my entire life. I think if I, I still, I'm sure, have such a misconception about other cultures. And it's sad to think about, but I know for a fact, 100% I do, because that's the only lens I've come from, you know? And that's the most, okay, that, see, that's one difference between your generation and my generation is that your generation knows. Yeah. That yeah. you know that you don't know everything <laughs> about it. But my generation was fed like heavy propaganda, yeah. uh, you know, reinforcing U.S. hegemony mm-hmm. and, you know, um, and uh, so I feel like I'm, I'm back in school now as a 41 year old unlearning. Yeah just like constantly unlearning and unlearning mm-hmm. and unlearning and your generation is like you know yeah that 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 our school systems have been teaching us lies and om- and lies of omission also oh, yeah. you know for for many many generations and and your generation is fighting for that change yeah. I think that is what is just so amazing and unique about our generation my generation is that we have been given the ability of true globalization when it comes to information like mm-hmm. social media has completely revolution like it just made things so different we now have the ability to know things for the better or worse that we never would have known about before mm-hmm. and it's little things like the social media we use and the information the access to information we have i mean I think I am really so fortunate to, you know, live in a place and grow up in a generation where everybody is so willing to learn and yes. step out of yes. the kids' menu and, <laughs> you know, really just grab a bite of a burger that might taste better, you know, than a grilled cheese sandwich. So, see, this is why I want to be a teacher. I, I just want to hang out with young people all the time. I'm so inspired. And, you know, yeah. I have a 21 year old stepdaughter mm-hmm. and she's, you know, oh, she's 22. <laughs> Oops. I hope she doesn't listen to this. <laughs> but, but I'm just like, I, yeah, I mean, I when I was your age, everyone was telling my generation that, you know, you yeah. guys are going to be the ones that yeah. make it all better. And, you know, of course, we tried. Yeah. <laughs> we did our part, like, to the best of our abilities at the time. But yeah. it's just, it's beautiful to see with every coming generation yeah. the wisdom and the willingness. Yeah. And then, I like, the the flip side of that is that my generation, you know, I'm, I was born at the very end of, of Gen X. Yeah. So now they're calling us geriatric millennials. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my generation and the generations older than me, like, I think it's a big blind spot for us. I think a lot of us assumed that, well, we did so much activism in our youth and, oh, we protested the wars and we did, mm-hmm. you know, but the work never ends. It's ongoing. You know, the struggle for justice is vast and, and it's a lifetime of work. We can't just say, Oh, I'm too old for this now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is what is just so significant. I mean, my generation, like Gen Z has made such a huge impact on the political, social, economic hemisphere mm-hmm. in a matter of a couple of years. And yes. a lot of us like can't even vote. I know. And that is what is just 
so shocking. I, it just completely exemplifies how people have such a huge ability to make change. You mm-hmm. know, like if only we could put our minds together and come to a cause. There is so much potential for change and justice, and that and room for opinion and ideas. Mm-hmm. There's. It's not just one lens. I mean, it's really, we have the ability to discover so many different ways. The revolution or the movement of going against appropriation of cultures. I mean, it's, we can't, in that case, we can't vote on things. Yeah. You know, we have to think outside of the box. We have to think of better ways, put our minds together Mm -hmm. to see what we can really do outside of the straight line movement. Mm -hmm. That is what the appropriation movement is right now you Mm -hmm. know it requires us to think more deeply into what we can really do about it because our ability to change things in such a strong-willed industry could feel so small yes but I think that what people don't realize is even the smallest bit of movement changes so so many things absolutely yeah and I think my generation is the perfect perfect example of that when we use the word mythology to talk about deities and their pastimes, mm-hmm. um, I think that we are just automatically telling people that it's not real. Yeah. And that's kind of falling for a non-indigenous paradigm again. Yeah. Yeah. Because, in, because the way the deities are related to within Hinduism, and of course they're related to in lots of different ways, it's mm-hmm. not it's not a it's not a one size fits all faith yeah. but but the way the deities are related to is um you know not that hindus think that like vishnu is up there floating in a cloud yeah. you know next to the white guy with the beard <laughs> it's not like that at all but that that but that the actual form and characteristics of the deities mm-hmm. their iconography everything about them represents very profound, meaningful, deep, and timeless spiritual truths and qualities of the divine. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about them, like when we use the word mythology, it tells the listener Mm -hmm. to not believe what they're hearing. But actually, the believing part is not... Hindus don't have to believe... um, Okay, here's a good example. Itihasa. Mm-hmm. We think of Ramayana and Mahabharata as um, uh, as itihasa. Mm-hmm. It is a historical yeah. uh, story. Yeah. And it is that that is the view of those stories from within the indigenous cultural tradition. Yeah they are viewed as the spiritual history of that land Mm -hmm. and so and its people Mm -hmm. and so when western academia looks at that and says well you can't historically prove that rama built a bridge to lanka or you know any of these things Mm -hmm. Then, which is funny because there's because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but you know, trying to that then to say that okay, it's not history, it's hagiography, or mm. it's you know, it's it's mythology. Mm. That's you know, Hinduism 
doesn't even view time as linear. Right. Yeah. It views time as cyclical. Mm -hmm. And so like the more we try to view, I mean, the Western gaze on Hinduism is so deeply flawed for so many reasons. These are just a few examples, but they, they just don't even apply, yeah. you yeah. know, and it's more important when you know, it's more important for us to separate those two views. We can look at history as an academic field of study. And, you know, and in that case, then it's very important for us to do things like carbon dating, you know, ruins and trying to and examining ancient documents and translating ancient mm -hmm. texts and things like that. It's that's all very important to understanding history on one level. Yeah. And then there's this cultural history and spiritual history that is remembered through ancestry and has mm -hmm. been stewarded through the generations. Yeah. And yoga is very much like that. It's, you know, I think a lot of the question of cultural appropriation in the West is trying to view it through a Western academic lens. Yeah. You know, this idea of, is there a point in time where, where Hindus claim yoga as a Hindu thing? Yeah. That's, that, that is a straw man argument. Yeah. You know, it's, Hinduism, or or like people saying, oh, the word Hinduism isn't e you know, isn't even an indigenous yeah. <clears throat> uh, term. Yeah, yeah. These are pointless arguments. It's totally beside the point. You're yeah. you're tilting at windmills. It's not about whether, you know, it's not what <laughs> about whether Hindus called themselves Hindus at yeah. any particular yeah. point in history. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really putting um, a religion that has nothing to do with a Western point of view or a lens into a box of what people view or what white people view as Abrahamic religions. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't put Hinduism in the same understanding as Abrahamic religions. I remember growing up and asking my parents, like, what is our one God? You know, like, what is like <laughs> the, the main one? one? <laughs> yeah, what's, the, what's the main dude? You know, like, which one am I like, what, do I have to pick a day? And, or like, I remember thinking like, so why don't we go to temple every Sunday? Or like, why do we have to go every Thursday? Like, why isn't it every Sunday? Yeah. Or like, <laughs> Why do we have to have like fasting food on fasting days? Mm -hmm. Why can't I have like pizza? Because that's what makes me happy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's just like putting things that are putting things in a different lens that don't need to be there. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that is where the appropriation talks come in so much. There's not one view. There's not one right way mm -hmm. that needs to be applied mm -hmm. to every culture in this world. Mm -hmm. Each culture has its own lens for a reason. Yes. You know? Yes. And I think with people who practice yoga who aren't Hindu, I think a lot of people take it from a white Christian, mm -hmm. atheist, whatever it is, lens, um, which can be harmful to the tradition and mm -hmm. the lineage of yoga because that's not what the reality is. You know, yes. when practicing something that has so much history, you have to kind of step into the shoes of the people who yes. are actually practicing it in the way it should be. Yes. You know, you can't blame anyone for the lens they come from. Mm -hmm. um, but you can always encourage people to look at it in a different way and a less harmful way because that's really all it, appropriation and the appropriation movement comes down to mm -hmm. you know it's all yes. about just shifting the way we we view things just decolonizing mm -hmm. 
yoga, you know. Okay, so you said the D word. So <laughs> <laughs> I want, this is a, you know, cultural appropriation and decolonization are two very closely related issues. And um, there are two words and movements that I feel the yoga industry mm-hmm. is currently um, using for mm. their profit. Yeah. And so there's a really brilliant academic paper out there. I'm not remembering the authors at the moment, but mm. I'll definitely send it to you. It's called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, written um, in the context of Native American peoples. Yeah. And talking really about how decolonization like in the 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 yoga industry has kind of adopted this term decolonizing yoga Mm -hmm. um as what the yoga industry means when they say decolonize yoga is they mean uh increasing diversity Mm -hmm. and i think that you know diversity is a really important thing for a white dominated industry to look at but it doesn't actually address the colonization of yoga if you have brown people mm-hmm. perpetuating the same harmful cultural oh, right. appropriation yeah. that white people engage in. Yeah. And so they're, they're synthesizing the same harms. And then you mm-hmm. have lateral violence between communities of color. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And I, um, I see, you know, Yoga Alliance offering, you know, paid continuing education courses Mm -hmm. on decolonization of yoga. And I always think about this academic paper and this idea that decolonization is not a metaphor. It means the rematriation of land, of resources, of knowledge, of, of, um, of wealth, of, of, uh, yeah, resources to the indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And so in the case, so what that would look like in in yoga's case Mm -hmm. is that the yoga industry and the people who participate in it and profit from it, that they give back control and ownership Mm -hmm. of the resources and the wealth. They give it back. They put it back into the hands of the indigenous people, and then they let the indigenous people determine what their non-indigenous participation can look like. And so that means like really decolonizing yoga. If you're a white person and you really want to decolonize your yoga practice, the first thing you need to ask yourself is, am I willing to give it all up? Mm -hmm. And am I willing to participate on indigenous people's terms Mm -hmm. am i willing to participate in yoga and kirtan and things like this you know within the indigenous context where i'm invited Mm -hmm. instead of positioning myself as an authority uh no matter how much you may know about it you know i mean i could say oh me teaching yoga isn't appropriation because i'm a practicing hindu and i know a lot about it and my teachings were you know very authentic and lineage based and i could say those things but at the end of the day because i um there's one thing that this decolonization movement has 
taught me is that white people cannot decolonize anything. Mm-hmm. We can only uncolonize. Yeah. And so the it's Indians that have to do the work of decolonizing yoga. Mm-hmm. And and non-Indian people, whether you're white or not, our work is uncolonizing yoga, mm-hmm. which means we need to do the work of figuring out what resources, what knowledge, what opportunities are we willing to put back into the hands of the indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that is a really great way to um, introduce the, the next really big topic we want to talk about and how a lot of the FaceTime of the yoga industry is white people. Mm-hmm. And I think we've already really um, mentioned this, but, you know, in companies like yoga alliance mm-hmm. um you barely ever see authentic and true representations of the hindu perspective of yoga forget perspective the actual yoga practices you know mm-hmm. um i remember mentioning this to you when we were um figuring out how to do this but one percent less than one percent of content contributors in yoga alliance are South Asian. Mm-hmm. That's not even to mention the people who are not Hindu and are South Asian are still participating in whatever the perpetuation of Yoga Alliance propaganda is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's literally that there is not a single, I wouldn't say none, but there is like barely ever authentic representation of yoga practices and South Asian people Mm -hmm. and culture to something that is their own. And if there is that representation, it feels tokenized because their presentation doesn't actually fit within the larger scheme of what Yoga Alliance is is offering. Yeah. Yoga Alliance does not exist to further the careful and respectful stewardship of yoga tradition Mm -hmm. for future generations. Yoga Alliance exists to to help the yoga industry profit. Right. And that's ultimately what it is. And the only reason Yoga Alliance entered the cultural appropriation or decolonization discourse in the first place Mm -hmm. is because they were losing cultural capital. Yeah. Because the conversation started happening Mm -hmm out there in the yoga world and it got really uncomfortable and you know i (laughs) i can't tell you how uncomfortable these conversations are you know like talking with white people about cultural appropriation is scary Mm -hmm. like they and i'm saying this as a white woman (laughs) you know so i can't even relate to what it's like as as a Hindu brown woman Mm -hmm. trying to make your voice heard in that totally white dominated space that has totally disrespected and exploited your ancestral heritage. You know, I can't even imagine how difficult it is because when I speak up about it, I get shouted down, I get Mm -hmm. blocked, I get unfriended, I, I lose you know, I lost jobs. Mm-hmm. I've been legally threatened. Mm-hmm. I've been um, financially threatened. I've been stalked. I've gone through like a lot yeah. in in entering into this conversation, and I'm in the conversation with as much privilege as you could possibly have within it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that 
I see Yoga Alliance, you know, um, kind of uh, making these paltry, giving these crumbs. Yeah, like trivializing. Yeah, yeah. To, to the movement. And, yeah. But when they do include, you know, that there are a couple of South Asian teachers that have worked with Yoga Alliance mm -hmm. um, here and there. Mm -hmm. And and some of them I know to be very, very excellent teachers. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel like their work gets completely buried because yeah. the reason that it, it, it is there within the Yoga Alliance framework is only to make yoga alliance look good right yeah yeah and but in the meantime there's no meaningful structural change mm -hmm. within the organization that would actually uh, you know help to address the root causes of of cultural appropriation and harm yeah i mean it um i look at these sort of companies and i think about what they're what they're marketing <laughs> you know part of their building looks like because to be a thousand percent honest, they do a really not amazing job of marketing themselves in a more woke way. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. not not till this day there has, not until a couple years ago there has been a South Asian person on the cover of their magazine. Mm -hmm. I mean, how long did it take for them to really be part of the discussion? Not even giving their whole heart into it, but just stepping in with one left foot you yes know? and and they never platform their critics right they right. only platform people that are going to deliver the bad news in the gentlest way yeah. Yeah. as possible and they they specifically look for people who who um who aren't going to say those hard words. Yeah. They're not going to say the, the, the plain truth about what decolonization actually looks like. They're going to tell you, oh, decolonization looks like, you know, acknowledging yoga's roots mm -hmm. or, you know, and so then what? Yeah. So a white yoga teacher gets up in front of her class and says, you know, yoga originated in India, yeah. you know, and, and, Oh, and yeah. then what? Like, if the teacher herself or himself or they self still doesn't have, like, a meaningful relationship with the culture mm -hmm. and the community and the tradition itself and the lineage, they're, they're not really addressing anything. Yeah. It's a Band-Aid. I think that's what um, just acknowledging and just, quote-unquote, respecting mm -hmm. what yoga is and where it comes from, if... I feel like since that is the way it's seen in the lens of people that are critical of the appropriation movement, mm -hmm. it seems so easy and trivial to them. Mm -hmm. They're like, if that's all you want, whatever, sure, I respect yoga. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure people do. I am 100% sure in their mind they really want to be engaged and respect yoga in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. The only thing is being like a little boy scout about it does not solve the actual issue and I think that people misunderstand what we're asking of them yes you know we're not asking the yoga industry to just make out or like release a press statement saying we respect South Asian culture and the Hindu <laughs> roots that yoga comes from amazing yeah 
thank you so much. Yeah, and, and not, then what? That's, that's a, it doesn't cut it, you know? Yes, like, yes. Like, think about, like, the land, how, you know, popular land acknowledgments have become. Like, yeah. acknowledging what ancestral indigenous yeah. peoples lived on the land that you're currently on. Like, yeah. a, a land acknowledgment is... I think it's a very beautiful and profound thing. I think that we should all know what land we're standing on yeah. and um, and the history and mm-hmm. and all of that. But um, but what's actually better for indigenous people? Mm-hmm. Acknowledging that they existed before we, you know, built on top of their land and stole it from them and mm-hmm. genocided them, yeah. or or is it better for us to actually? give that land back and give them the resources back, you know, give them the opportunities, the Mm -hmm. social and economic opportunities to thrive. That is uncolonizing. Yeah. I think that not, not just standing up and saying, Oh, I'm in X territory and you know, yeah, I, I feel like it's 0.25 of the step that needs to be taken, you know? Um, and I, I think it all really boils down to the fact that the reason there are so many critics of this movement is because they really don't even understand what we're asking for. And to them, it seems so easy, Mm -hmm. right? And it's, it's not as black and white as it makes it seem. (laughs) And I was just praising social media, like not two seconds ago, but (laughs) I think it's a double-edged sword. <laughs> yeah, it, there's more to it, you know. I, it's an amazing um, way of spreading information, but there's also stuff that isn't displayed on social media. There's just there's more to do, you know. Yes. Stuff that cannot be explained in a single 250-character tweet, Yeah. you know. Yeah, of course. It's, uh, obviously, social activism is such a huge, huge part of this and this is really how it spurred up and started, and especially in my generation. But that's not all we have to do. You know, you can't just create Yoga Alliance's Instagram icon to be a brown girl for a month. Yep. You know? Yeah. Or you can't... It's, it's, it's like, it, this is what happens in every, you know, big movement. Like for, um, for LGBTQ month, mm-hmm. every big company will suddenly have a bunch of filters on mm-hmm. Snapchat or yep. a, like a little LinkedIn icon yep. um, saying, oh, we support LGBTQ youth. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, how? How? In like, what meaningful, like right. concrete, tangible ways? Yeah. Like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I can also click a button. Yeah. Like, yeah. Hire me. Give me $1.5 million salary every year, you know? So I think actually like you're speaking to a really actually kind of a very deep thing, which is that when people of privilege are faced with um, the oppression that is opposing their privilege, there there is like a sense of guilt and shame Mm -hmm. and grief and like I'll I'll just speak to my experience as a white person, you know, when I first started this journey of getting involved in cultural appropriation discourse and decolonization discourse and, you know, anti-racism and all of these things, 
you know, I really struggled with the guilt mm -hmm. and, and I saw how closely bonded communities of color mm -hmm. were mm -hmm. within their oppression. And yeah. I felt like an outsider who was carrying the weight of my ancestors, you know, misdeeds on my shoulders. Mm -hmm. And so I can understand kind of this urge to want like uh here's five quick tips for decolonizing your yoga practice mm -hmm. you know yeah. and i i understand that urge to want to just relieve the pain yeah i uh, want to feel like you're doing something. yeah i yeah. i i don't want to feel like a shitty person i right. want to i want to be one of the good guys like yeah. white people i think in particular suffer from this this good person syndrome kind yeah, of thing where we don't. need to be viewed as it's very important to us culturally yeah. to be viewed as good yeah. and we go through great lengths to appear as That's good, good people and yeah. to to sort of broadcast our goodness to others in the world you know right. we we need like 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 I always laugh whenever I go to Portland is like the whitest city in the world and you've <laughs> never seen so many Black Lives Matter signs <laughs> you know it's performative activism yeah and so going deeper than performative activism, um, something that I've really come to learn and cherish in my own journey is this idea that right now is the best time in history to be a white person mm -hmm. because we are the ones who have an opportunity to make amends mm -hmm. for our ancestors' harm. And even though it's very scary work, it can be uncomfortable, it can be really awkward, you can feel singled out, you can feel like you're losing things that are meaningful to you, it can be very emotionally unsettling. Mm -hmm. um, it's so profoundly rewarding. Yeah. The meaningful relationships that you will create and the new and deeper truths that you will open up to and the, the healing that happens through doing this work, you will find yourself in, in a deeper way of knowing and relating to the world around you. It's yeah. so worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, your experience on, you know, being in being a white woman in such a big industry that wasn't supposed to be reflected in the way it is, I think, you know, the experience you hold as a one of the few progressive, um, open, you know, people up for this discussion is that there's a lot there there's a lot you can say about what it means to be in the industry and now that mm -hmm. you're not in it what it means to not contribute to that corporate corporate profiting mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and as relieving as it as relieving as it is for you mm -hmm. i know that for a lot of people and i know for maybe for people even watching this mm -hmm. there's just they can't leave that industry yeah. in the same way that you did. Yes. Right. Yes. And so what would you say to them, who, to people who want to be part of the industry, who want to practice yoga, mm -hmm. maybe not even teachers mm -hmm. and don't want to feel guilty or bad for what they're doing because they truly, you know, enjoy and recognize mm -hmm. what they're doing. You mm -hmm. know, what is your um, <laughs> advice or yeah. experience to them? 
So there's two things that I've sort of landed on mm -hmm. over the years that I've been doing this work that seem to be at the heart of making progress. Yeah. One of them is you have to forge meaningful relationships mm -hmm. with the culture and the tradition. Mm -hmm. If you understand that yoga comes from Hinduism and related, it's related Dharma traditions, mm -hmm. then, and you, and you want to teach it or you want to go deeper in your practice, mm -hmm. you need to be interacting with Hindus mm -hmm. <laughs> in their own habitats. Mm -hmm you've got to go to the temples. You've got to read the teachings of the masters, mm -hmm. not the white interpretations, but yeah. you, you have to, you know, you should um, immerse yourself in the culture as much as possible. If you have the privilege to travel to India, don't, don't support another, another white Western yoga, yoga and wellness retreat or whatever, yeah. you know, like, go stay in an Indian ashram and do real ashram sadhana and seva and immerse yourself in that environment. Yeah. And um, so the, the cultural immersion is critical. Yeah. There, there is, because one of the most important things that I've come to understand about yoga is that a very significant por portion of what yoga has to offer a spiritual aspirant yeah. is embedded within yoga's culture of origin. Yeah. It's not only about the scriptures and it's not only about the practices themselves, but a huge part of the actual gifts of yoga is cultural. Mm -hmm. And so when you go to an Indian family's home and they they, they hold you hostage for five hours, just feeding you until you can barely move. And, and, you know, and you become somehow the time flies and you leave there feeling like you're part of their family and like you really bonded with them. And, um, and you sit at their home puja and, you know, and, and do even just very small ceremony together. If you, I mean, that's what I'm talking about. That is, that is the way to study yoga. You know, if you are a non-Indian person and you're trying to decolonize your yoga practice or teaching, first start by asking yourself, how deep are my relationships with the Indian community and with Hinduism? Mm -hmm. And how can I further those relationships? Not so that I can become more authentic and, and profit more off of them, but so that I can, so that I can, um, do my practice and my presentations with less harm mm -hmm. and more respect. The second thing that I think is really an important piece of this puzzle is that if you are a yoga teacher, especially, but also if you are a practitioner, we have to look at how to disrupt capitalism within yoga whenever and wherever we can. I think personally, and. I know a lot of studio owners that are very fine people and they run their businesses as ethically as they possibly can and their trainings and things. Um, and, you know, I don't want anyone to take 
what I'm saying as like a general blanket black and white mm -hmm. statement that, you know, anyone who takes home a paycheck on yoga is a terrible person or whatever. But I do want people to really start thinking about how harmful capitalism as a system mm -hmm. is and the role that capitalism plays in the yoga industry. Capitalism is inherently exploitative. And so the, the very nature of the yoga industry, the yoga studio model, the yoga teacher training model, the yoga alliance model is rooted in capitalism. It's rooted on financial exploitation, labor exploitation, and cultural exploitation. Um, and so we have to get more creative and, and create ways to disrupt capitalism within yoga because yoga was never traditionally given within a capitalist framework. At the same time, um, it, it is absolutely intrinsic to the tradition that there's an exchange of energy between teachers and students. You know, a student would never go to a qualified teacher empty handed and just ask to receive their wisdom. They would always offer, even if they didn't have anything material to offer to the teacher, they would offer their service in some way. So there's always been an exchange of energy that is part of the tradition. But the extractionist capitalist relationship between seller and consumer, mm -hmm. that has never been part of the yoga tradition until, until it's yoga's new incarnation in the West, which is unfortunately now being carried back to India mm -hmm. and replicated in India. So one way that you can disrupt capitalism in yoga is by um, practicing and teaching yoga uh, without charging. Mm -hmm. And so if you are a yoga teacher, teach a class out of your living room, teach it in a local park, um, and ask your students, because we don't already have this cultural inherent uh, concept of donation, it's yeah. not, in America, capitalism is the gospel <laughs> of, of financial interactions here. We don't, we're not very well versed in the art of donating. Mm -hmm. um, so yoga teachers can help to grow the commu their community's consciousness around donation models. I think it's really worth exploring. I think that um, it helps to disrupt some of the power imbalance between teachers and students, and, um, and, and it also helps to address some of the, the class and accessibility issues that yoga is pl plagued with. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we were discussing this before, but Yoga Alliance being such a important contender in the way that the yoga industry has been shaped, and especially how teachers um, you know, go about their classes and mm -hmm. their scheduling and the way that they're paid and just the overall model of a yoga studio. Um, a lot of people are certified through Yoga Alliance. Mm -hmm. um, most, most, most people, people, yeah. Right. And so if we weren't to support that corporation for obvious reasons, um, what other way would there be for people to certify themselves and to accredit themselves mm -hmm. um, in this industry? So I love this question so much because as you know, I, I recently ran a teacher training mm -hmm. before I retired that your mom was in, mm -hmm. um, that we did outside of Yoga Alliance. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think my reasons for wanting to work outside of Yoga Alliance have already been explored in this conversation so far, but um, Yoga Alliance is 
It's just a capitalist invention. Yeah. I think we have to look to the tradition itself mm -hmm. and see how were quote unquote yoga teachers made mm -hmm. in the past in with from, you know, how does the tradition itself make teach produce teachers and high quality teachers? Mm -hmm. um, and the way that the tradition itself produces teachers is that uh, a student demonstrates over time their dedication to their study and practice and their um, maturity in their study and practice. And at a certain point, the teacher invites the student to begin taking on their own students. Mm -hmm. So the, uh, a, a yoga practitioner doesn't just assume that it's time for them to become a teacher. Mm -hmm. They're given that, you know, they're handed that honor by mm -hmm. their teacher. It's something bestowed on them. Yeah. And in that way, that preserves the lineage. And then the teacher mentors that person, you know, knowing that they're on the road of becoming a teacher. Mm -hmm. And this is true not just with yoga asana, but you know, but with every um, area of what yoga is, including including classical performing arts. Yeah. And um, so, what I wanted to do with my teacher training, me and Kirti's teacher training, mm -hmm. is for one, I teamed up with a Hindu South Asian woman who I, a colleague of mine, that I am. Her name is Kirti Saran. If if uh, if anyone's curious where they can find a good Hindu yoga teacher in Silicon Valley, <laughs> she's amazing. Um, and I, you know, I wanted. I, I went to her and I said I want to do this outside of Yoga Alliance, and she was just totally down right away. She was like, "Okay, what does that look like?" And you know certification is just a it's just a made-up construct certification doesn't exist within the tradition mm -hmm. that certification is something that the Western world came up with um, and I was actually grandfathered into Yoga Alliance way back in the day because I'd been teaching uh, you know already for so long that I didn't ha I never in 20 years of teaching yoga, I only paid Yoga Alliance dues two times, and I never did a Yoga Alliance teacher training. I never took a Yoga Alliance teacher training. I was grandfathered in by by another yoga teacher, mm -hmm. and um, and I never paid Yoga Alliance dues. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I think we have to look to the tradition itself when we're answering these questions. I think certification is a joke. Yeah, I think it's. It's a money-making racket, and it—it—it's. I can't tell you how many yoga practitioners that want to go through teacher training or are going through teacher training, they, you know, they are absolutely convinced that without a Yoga Alliance certification or credential, that they're not going to be able to work as teachers, yeah. and they're. That is true to a small extent. There are some studios that are going to ask to see your Yoga Alliance registration. Mm -hmm. And actually, let me make this distinction. Yoga Alliance is, is a registry. It's not a, certificate, a certifying body. Mm -hmm. There is no like government-approved certification. It's not like getting a medical degree or something like that, mm -hmm. or, or like a... a 
you know, an electrician's mm -hmm. certification, or it's not like that. Cosmetology. Yeah, yeah. There, there's nothing official about it. Right. A Yoga Alliance registry mm -hmm. is a glorified phone book mm -hmm. of, of teachers who have been through teacher trainings that the teacher training paid a fee to Yoga Alliance to get approved. Right. <laughs> so it, I mean, it literally is a glorified phone book. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's nothing substantial to it. Mm -hmm. And, um, anybody can offer a yoga teacher training mm -hmm. and for the student to be able to discern what is a good yoga teacher training and what is a bad yoga teacher training, I think they would do much better instead of looking to whether or not that training is Yoga Alliance approved, they would do much better to look and see whether the, like what kind of meaningful relationships do the teacher trainers have with yoga's indigenous culture and source traditions? Mm -hmm. What, and what kind of meaningful um, relationships does the teacher have with um, with their own practice. How long have they been practicing? Who are their teachers? Ask your teachers, what is their lineage? Yeah. You know, try and try and find, um, find a teacher trainer that is really, really rooted in yoga and that teaches yoga as a moksha sadhana, not as a fitness and wellness or, you know, not, not like that. I mean, fitness and wellness are like positive side effects right. of yoga asana practice but yoga is a moksha sadhana it is a practice that is intended to liberate us spiritually right. and so it for a teacher to be qualified to teach a spiritual aspirant the way to moksha they have to have traveled pretty far down that road themselves mm -hmm. and so yoga alliance isn't in the business of taking people to moksha mm -hmm. Yoga Alliance is just in the business of turning a profit. And the more real we get about that, the, the, the simpler these conversations will become. Yeah. So there's a, obviously now we've just gone through an hour and a half of our whole <laughs> industry that profits <laughs> off of this culture. Um, and it's, you know, Yoga Alliance has its own magazine. They mm -hmm. have its Yoga own, Journal. Yeah, they have their own um, registry your phone book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so is there, do you ever see, um, in the foreseeable future that there would be a, maybe like a South Asian company kind of, or are there already, um, companies and people doing what Yoga Alliance does, um, mm -hmm. in a better and more ethical way? And if so, mm -hmm. um, which ones are there and which ones, um, can our listeners go and reach out to and mm -hmm. learn more about? I believe there are some efforts being made towards that end. And I don't know the names of the specific organizations that are starting to come up, but I can get those to you and mm -hmm. maybe you can put it in the show notes. I will. Um, I feel that I think it's a really good idea. And I think that again, when we talk about decolonizing yoga, we're, like we said, we're talking about rematriating the, the resources, the wealth, the opportunities, the land, all mm -hmm. of those things back to the indigenous lineage keepers. And so creating an organization that is founded by and run by those indigenous lineage holders 
is a really, really good idea. The, the, the potential snags that mm -hmm. I see are that if that organization is created in a capitalist framework like Yoga Alliance, mm -hmm. it could very easily replicate the same harms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And also that um, there are plenty of South Asian Indians out there also misrepresenting yoga. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like we talked about Deepak Chopra before mm -hmm. we started recording, like that's just a very obvious example. But there, you know, they're just, I would caution like non-Indian listeners of this, especially to not just assume that, you know, just because a teacher is Indian that they are automatically an expert mm -hmm. or like automatically an, an authoritative source of knowledge mm -hmm. about yoga because yoga was so, because the British tried, you know, so hard for 300 years mm -hmm. of colonization to separate Indian people from their from their culture and traditions. So, mm -hmm. so we can't just assume that just putting Indians, you know, like creating an Indian yoga alliance is really the answer. Right. I mean, you can't ask my dad to teach yoga. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, like but we can only well. teach what we know. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but, um, but I do think it's a good idea. I think it should be a not-for-profit endeavor. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, I think that, yeah, I, it's a very delicate process. Mm -hmm. And there are some amazing, I, I, I know some South Asian women out there in the world right now that I've never met in real life. I only know them through social media, but we've worked very closely together for a long time. And um, I mean, there are some people doing some amazing work around this stuff. And I think, I think if, you know, to, I think in order to look towards a better future for yoga, we really have to look to the past. Mm -hmm. We really have to see yoga has been here. You know, the yoga industry has only been here for a few decades, yeah. but yoga has been here for thousands of years. And so if we really want to figure out how to decolonize and uncolonize and return yoga to something more connected, more rooted in its original purpose and intent. Um, I think we should look, we should look to history. Mm -hmm. You know, we should, you, you should look to your ancestors. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for that. Um, and thank you so much for, you know, having us and tell, just informing <laughs> our viewers and, um, taking this experience with me, you know, it's honestly, um, despite being South Asian, despite being Hindu, there's so much about this. There's a, there's a really big unknown, Yeah. you know, about um, how other people view what I have seen in a different perspective for such a long time. Yes. And, um, you know, I'm forever, forever grateful and thankful for you meeting with me and, you know, helping me and helping other of people course. understand. Um, a different point of view and a way to navigate this in a much more ethical and um, dedicated, you know, honorable yes. yeah, way. Yeah, honorable way. Yes. <laughs> um, and I think that will be it for today. So thank you guys so much for listening. And I will be leaving references and little transcript at the bottom. Um, 
And I think that's it. Thank you you so much. This was so fun and awesome. And I'm so honored to be asked by you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And I think that's a wrap. And see you guys in the next one. Bye.